Amen. You can put away your hymnals and take out your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, starting in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day that you have made. And we thank you for gathering us together as your people. Lord, we pray now that as your word is opened and proclaimed, that you would cause it to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, we pray that it would be profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Lord, equip us for every good work. We pray now that you would do what only you can to open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds, that we may receive it for what it is, your word, and not the word of man. Uh, may you be glorified in us, and may it be only your truth that is spoken now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, and we come at last now to the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, as Brian mentioned last week, we had to, Lazarus had to wait one more week for his resurrection as uh, I had the week off to welcome our new son. Um, but now we come back into our text in John, and to recap the story here, Jesus had received a message that Lazarus was sick. And then we saw because of his love for Lazarus and his sisters, he then waited two more days where he was. Jesus told his disciples that the end of this illness would not be death, but would ultimately be to the glory of God through his son. Jesus had a greater purpose in mind than another healing. A greater purpose that would ultimately be shown to be for the glory of God and the good of his people. So we saw Jesus arrived outside the village of Bethany and spoke with Martha and then with Mary. And verse 33 told us that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. We saw that these words indicated something more than mere grief, uh, but rather it indicates anger, indignation. It was more than grief. And our text now this morning picks up with a therefore. The Jews had just asked in the previous section, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus, or therefore Jesus, deeply moved again, 
came to the tomb. Now, as we saw, Jesus had his love questioned. He had his power doubted. There were complex things going on in his heart at this point. And again, whatever those causes were, this display of emotion points to the full humanity of Christ. A doctrine applied in scripture for our comfort. That we would know that our mediator understands what we go through. And so now Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, uh, which was a cave with a stone sealing the entrance. Now, just as a quick side note here, uh, this is an indicator, along with a few others, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were both a prominent and a wealthy family. Now, Dia Carson observes that uh, having a large number of Jews travel from Jerusalem to come and comfort the family is not something that simply an average person would have had. Uh, we see as well another indication uh, being the cost of the perfume, which Mary would later pour out on the head of our Lord in chapter 12. You may remember that was worth uh, 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. So we're looking at about a year's salary for a worker was the value of that perfume she poured out. Um, another indication here is the fact that Lazarus was laid in a tomb such as this. We may notice the similarity to Christ's tomb. And you may know from that story that it was only because a wealthy man gave Christ his own tomb. Uh, the average person would not have had a tomb like this. So we have a few indications that this was a wealthy family. And as we've seen through this text, it was a family that Jesus loved deeply. And just as a, as a brief side note, I think that would point to the fact that contrary to the assumptions of some within our culture today, Scripture does not assume that simply having wealth makes you an oppressor, uh, makes you an evil person. Notice here, Jesus did not avoid this family because they were wealthy. Rather, as we've seen, Jesus loved them deeply. While Scripture does warn against the many potent temptations and pitfalls that wealth can bring, we see that it is not sinful in and of itself to be wealthy. Right, many godly people were very wealthy through Scripture. <clears throat> now, to unfairly paint all wealthy people as oppressors is to stoke the fires of envy and is used to justify what they will then call the redistribution of wealth. Call it what you want, but when you unjustly take what someone has lawfully earned in order to give it to another, you have committed theft. Now, there are many ways to sin with money or in pursuit of money, but we should not assume with our culture, with the Marxists, that someone is automatically sinful because they are wealthy. Jesus was good friends with his family, and they were likely very wealthy. But for those who have been blessed with wealth, we must seek to glorify God with what we've been given. We must hold it with an open hand, knowing, as Job learned, that God has given and God may take away. And we must always trust in God's providence rather than in the uncertainty of our riches. Now to continue on, verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Martha brings a very practical concern forward saying, by this time, there will be an odor, or if you have the old King James, she says, by this time, he stinketh. Lord, if you open this tomb, things are not going to be pleasant. 
Things will not be pleasant. Death will be on display in all of its ugly and pungent reality. Are you sure it is a good idea to open the tomb? Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Was that not the summary of our conversation? Did you not confess your faith that I am the resurrection and the life, that those who believe in me will live even though they die? Did you not confess that I am the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah who has prophesied to come into the world? If she believed all of these things, was she not expecting at some point to see the glory of God? It would be sooner than she thought. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The Father always hears the Son. Now, if you've grown up in or around the church, this is quite possibly something that you take for granted. Right? Those who are blessed to be born in Christian homes will have been taught to pray from an early age. And so the idea of being heard by God is as ordinary to them as their morning Cheerios. But have you ever thought about what an amazing privilege it is to gain an audience with your maker? to enter into the heavenly throne room and to approach the King of kings and Lord of lords and to present your petitions before him. Now, I'm thinking there are not many of us here who could gain an audience even with an earthly king. It is a very privileged man indeed who has open invitation, open access to come before a king anytime that he wishes. Now, let us just consider the gap that exists between an earthly king and the king of kings, the gap in dignity, the gap in majesty, in glory. So the question comes, why should God listen to you? Why should God listen to me? Why would he grant an audience with a little boy born on the prairies? Further, why would he grant an audience to a little boy born on the prairies who has sinned against him countless times? Someone who has rebelled against him, spat on his worth and dignity and chosen to serve sin instead of the true and living God. Why would he hear us? Jesus says in the text, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. The Father loves the Son. Jesus always pleases him. Jesus is a perfect Son, and so the Son knows that the Father always hears him. Now here's why, why God the Father hears us. To become a Christian is to be united to Christ. You'll hear scripture speak constantly of how we are in him, in Christ. That is union with Christ, united to him by faith. 
God, in his grace and mercy, receives us through his Son. Jesus is our mediator. He is our intercessor. Because of his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection, we now are forgiven and are received into the presence of God through Christ. So I encourage you, think about this the next time that you pray. You have no right on your own to enter into the throne room of heaven. You have not earned your way there by your good deeds. And so on your own, you would have no reason to think that God should hear the likes of you, let alone answer your petitions. But as we see in this text, God always hears his son. And it is for this reason that God hears us. For we come through Christ, our mediator. We come in him as those united to him by faith. And so God receives us as he receives his beloved son. This is why we will always end our prayers by saying, in Jesus' name we pray. Right? In Jesus' name. This is a recognition that we are only accepted because of what Christ has done. Because Christ is now pleading our acceptance at the right hand of the Father, who, as he ever lives, to make intercession for us. In God's grace, he receives us through his Son. And so, if we see that Christ here is confident that his Father always hears him, then we who are in Christ may be confident that God will always hear us. Right? Kids, think about that. Right? If you ever doubt that God would hear you, that God would listen to your prayers, think of this. Will God listen to his son? Absolutely. If you are in Christ, then he will listen to you as well. Father, I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now this prayer implies that Jesus has already received what he asked for and been granted the answer to the prayer for Lazarus's life. He nevertheless still prays aloud and he says, it is for the sake of those who are standing around that I say this. Now we actually do something similar with our corporate prayers, right? We too pray aloud. Uh, we pray together. Uh, we are, of course, addressing God, but as Jesus models for us here, we see we also have biblical warrant to pray with others in mind, right? to pray for those who are standing around, who are sitting around. So we encourage you, don't tune out during our times of corporate prayer. We are praying together. Uh, there is, uh, we are attempting to model what godly prayer looks like. Uh, we encourage you to pray in your heart with the leader and then to voice your agreement with a hearty amen. All right, I do not pray, or pardon me, I pray for the sake of those standing around that they may believe. This prayer of Jesus is another reminder as well to all who would hear that what he is about to do, this miracle he's about to perform, is not something he is doing independent from his father. As he has said frequently throughout John, 
He does the works that his father has given him to do. So we see there is unity between the father and the son. Jesus wants everyone to know it. Finally, then he says that he's doing this, that he's praying out loud, that all may believe that the father has sent him. And you may remember that this is the recurring theme in John. And it is actually the ultimate mission statement we get from John as to the reason that he wrote this gospel account and particularly why he wrote about all the signs that Christ performed. You may remember John 21, verse 30. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of writing. That is the purpose that John wrote down these signs. And here we now come to the greatest of Jesus' signs. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now let's just pause here and try to, try to enter the scene, try to picture what this would have been like. Imagine that you're a bystander, maybe a friend of the family. So to get this situation again, Lazarus was ill. He was declining rapidly. Things were getting better or worse instead of better. And so the family then sent for Jesus. But by the time he got there, it was too late. Lazarus died. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus shows up and starts talking with the sisters, chatting with them outside of the town. Then he asks them where Lazarus had been laid. Jesus comes to the tomb, asks them to roll away the stone. Now Martha protests, he's, he's been dead for a while, Lord. Right? This will not be pleasant in there. But Jesus persists, and so they do as he said. And likely, those men who rolled back the stone experienced what Martha had warned about. But then Jesus calls out with a loud voice speaking into that dead man's tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And then still bound, wrapped up in these strips of linen, in the sight of many witnesses, the man who had died got up and walked out of the tomb. Now John doesn't mention it, but we would imagine there were screams from some in the crowd. A collective inhale of shock and amazement as they see the man whom they had been grieving and mourning for the last four days walk out of the tomb. Jesus then tells them, unbind him from those grave clothes, let him free, and as they begin to unwrap him, they see that this man has been fully restored to life. (laughs) The color has come back into his cheeks. There is the light of life in his eyes and there is breath in his lungs and the shock and disbelief and perhaps horror in the hearts of many turns to overwhelming joy and gratitude and wonder. Lazarus was dead and Jesus raised him back to life. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let us consider the authority of Christ. The words of Jesus spoken into the dead man's tomb carried such authority that the dead man was brought back to life. His call to Lazarus was effectual. The call brought life. I think we probably know this. Dead men cannot respond to instructions on their own. Amen? Had anybody else that day called into the tomb, nothing would have happened. But the words of Christ carried such authority that the dead man was raised by the call. The call of Jesus is what granted Lazarus the ability to respond to it. So who is this man? Who is this man with the authority to call forth the dead out of their tombs such that they obey and live? John introduced him this way in this gospel account. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus is no ordinary man. As we see from John's prologue, Jesus is our creator. Right? Through him, all things were made. He was in the beginning with God, right? the agent of creation. And so at the word of Christ, things came into being. Galaxies formed. He commanded the nothing, and the nothing obeyed by becoming everything. He, call, he commanded the morning. He called out the stars by name, leading them to their places. He commanded, and the animals sprang up. Right? The ground became covered with vegetation. He separated the waters from the land. Right? He created all. The word then became flesh. God the Son became a man. The second person of the Godhead, through whom all things were made, entered into his own creation and dwelt among us. We celebrate that every Christmas. At his word, waves and wind obeyed. At his word, storms stopped. Sicknesses fled. Crowds marveled, demons trembled, and death itself worked backward. This is the authority of our Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he must reign until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Brothers and sisters, there is comfort in the authority of your Lord. For consider this, the same Lord who laid down his life to purchase us as his people is at the helm of the cosmos. So neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Such is his authority. Now there's also conviction for us in this. For with this same authority that commanded the morning, Christ also commands all men everywhere to repent. We, his people, are commanded to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. And so if the stars obey, if the sea and the wind obey, if death itself must obey, then we ought to tremble to think of what would await us if we would refuse to obey. May we, his people, obey our Lord. May we recognize his authority and live in a way that truly declares to the world, Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Let us live in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have received. For truly, much like Lazarus, we too have been called out of the grave. Consider what was our natural condition. You can turn with me to Ephesians 2, uh, starting in verse 1. We'll spend a little bit of time here. <clears throat> what is our natural condition? Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. says, you were dead, you were dead, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were dead in transgression and sin. As Lazarus was separated from all by death, we were separated from God, loving our sin, following the world, following the devil, carrying out the desires of our sinful flesh. Children, not of God, but of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And we've seen in John what this deadness of sin resulted in. It means that in our fallen condition, we have a real inability to respond to God positively. Such that apart from the work of his grace in us, we cannot come to him. As Jesus taught, John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me. That is, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. For John 8, 34, Jesus says, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
right? See the need of intervention. We cannot do this alone. We must be born again by the Spirit of God. We must be drawn by the Father. We must be set free from our bondage to sin. We must be transferred from the domain of darkness. We must be made alive, even though we were dead in transgression and sin. And in his grace, this is what God does for his people through Christ. If you still have your thumb in Ephesians 2, continue there. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you now are in Christ, If you are a believer, a born-again Christian with true love for Christ, true hatred of your sin, then this is true of you. You were dead. You were buried. And at just the right time, with divine authority, Jesus called to you as he called to Lazarus, come and you came you believed you were drawn to God through Christ this is the doctrine of effectual calling Romans 8 29 to 30 says this for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So catch this, those whom he predestined, he called. As he called to Lazarus, come forth from death to life, so has he called to you, his people. We see as well from this text, this is not something done for all people. For the result of being predestined and called is that you will be justified and glorified. So we see this is an effectual call. That means it accomplishes what it commands. Because we were dead in our sin and unable to come to Christ on our own, it had to be an effectual call. Here's the Westminster Catechism on effectual calling. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. If you are in Christ, it is because Christ has brought you new life. It is because the Spirit of God has removed your dead, stony heart and has given you a new one. Ezekiel 36, 26. He has granted you new desires. He has caused you to be born again so that you could see and enter the kingdom of God. This was God raising you up 
though you were dead in transgression and sin. This was Christ calling into you, calling to you in your deadness as he called to Lazarus, come forth. And his call was effectual and you came. And so God gets all the glory. Start to finish, salvation is his work. As Lazarus did not cooperate in his own resurrection, neither do we. God gets the glory. And this gives us hope. For we see the authority of Christ can raise the spiritually dead to new life. And so as we look around us and we see hostility to God, hatred of the true Christ and his word, it can at times look a lot to us like Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. But if you know that story, you know that Ezekiel was told to prophesy. And so he prophesied as he commanded, and behold, a rattling noise. As these bones began to come together, and sinews and flesh began to cover them. And then he prophesied as he was commanded to the wind, and the breath came into them, and they were alive, an exceedingly vast army. Like Ezekiel, we too have the calling to speak forth the word of God to the dry bones. And we know that as Lazarus was raised, as we were raised, so too God can bring life to the valley of dry bones around us. Christ is sovereign. And so there is nothing and nobody that is beyond the reach of his grace. If you look and see hard hearts around you, remember that there is no deader than dead. And Christ raises the dead. So let us, like Ezekiel, do our part in proclaiming the word of God and praying and trusting that God will give life to the dry bones. For Jesus is the resurrection and the life. His coming was the decisive turning point in human history. We know that death was not a part of God's original design. Death, rather, is part of the curse. It is the wages of sin. It is the just penalty we have earned for sinning against our maker. It is the last enemy that Christ will defeat. We now are born into a fallen world and into a cursed human race. Jesus came to defeat his and our enemies. He came to defeat sin, death, and Satan. And so this story of the resurrection of Lazarus is a great preview of what was about to come. For within roughly two weeks of this event, if we follow John's timeline, there would be another death and resurrection near Jerusalem. Jesus himself would die. He would die on a Roman cross, bearing the sin of his people in himself. He became sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died, bearing the curse of sin for his people. Taking the punishment due, the penalty earned, 
And so he died, satisfying the justice of God and reconciling his people to him. Jesus himself then rose from the dead. Now there's an important difference for us to note between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus. As D.A. Carson writes, Lazarus was called to a restoration of mortal life. Small wonder that he groped blindly for the exit and needed to be released from the grave clothes that bound him, close quote. Jesus rose and left the grave clothes behind. His resurrection was different, for death no longer had a hold on him. Christ's resurrection was not just a resurrection to mortal life, but a resurrection to immortality. Death has been defeated, and so it cannot touch him. Christ is raised with the power of endless life. And so for those who have heard Christ's effectual call, those who have been raised to spiritual life, here and now, those who believe in him are united to him by faith, they will all participate in Christ's resurrection. Scripture refers to Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, implying that there is a great harvest yet to come a great resurrection harvest yet to come. Those who are in Christ will be raised, not like Lazarus was raised, still to die again, but we will be raised as Christ was raised, to immortality. This is the Christian hope. This is what we celebrate on this Lord's Day as we remember the resurrection of Christ and anticipate our own resurrection. How then shall we live? As those who have been called out from spiritual death, those who have been raised to new life, as those who are indwelt now by the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, how then shall we now live? Brothers and sisters, let us live as those who are alive. Sin brought death. To be a slave to sin is to be spiritually dead. But Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He has raised you, if you are in him. He has raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were dead in transgression and sin, but you are no longer. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Since you are alive, since you are raised up with Christ, do not live as one who is still in the grave. Leave your sin there. You were saved from sin, not for sin. Christ died bearing the wrath of God against that sin. Do not continue to live in that which took Christ to the cross. 
Do not dare to take pleasure in that for which the wrath of God was poured out on his son. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is who you truly are. This is who you will be on the day when you are conformed perfectly to Christ's image. And so the call upon the Christian life is this. Be who you truly are. Be who you truly are in Christ. Be done with your sin, whatever it is. Be done with drunkenness. Be done with pornography. Be done with grumbling, murmuring, and complaining against God's governance of your life. Be done with anxiety, fear, and sinful worry. Be done with your hard-heartedness and pride. Be done with selfishness. Be done with taking offense easily. Be done with bitterness. Be done with joylessness. Be done with greed and covetousness. Be done with lying. Be done with sin. You will not be taking any of these things with you into the resurrection. Right? These are the deeds of the flesh. This is the old man who was crucified with Christ, buried with him. They are not a part of who you truly are, nor who you are becoming. They are not a part of your resurrection life. So leave your sins in the grave. Be who you really are in Christ. Put your sin to death and walk in the new life that Christ has purchased for you. I'll leave you this morning with Romans 6, 6 to 11. Paul writes this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the great resurrection hope that we have in him. Father, we thank you for having drawn us to yourself 